Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 and 12 through 14. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ Jesus has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would teach us this morning, and that teaching would mean more than dumping content into our brains, but that you would shape our hearts. We pray that you would connect everything that I say, that you want me to say, to everything that we have sung and everything that we have prayed and I pray for the conversations to follow. I pray all this in your name. Amen. As things were about to get started, Brad was so proud. He looked out across the room and saw a group of moms in the corner scheduling a baby shower for the obviously expecting woman in their midst. A group was gathered in the middle talking about the new children's space. And to the right, a newcomer was being welcomed to a group barbecue. And then that conversation was interrupted by someone sharing information about the homeless shelter everyone had chosen to help support that year. Brad started lighting candles up front, but he was interrupted multiple times by people, sometimes people just wanting to say hi, other times with a difficult question about their lives that he wished he had more time to answer. He felt honored and humbled that people would come to him for help. The lights dimmed and their service got started. A lot of call and response over some poppy music. Not Brad's favorite, but it's what people wanted. Before long, he was already wrapping up a message of hope and encouragement, thanking people for coming, cleaning up, and locking up the building. Walking back to his car, a few people had been chatting in the parking lot. They called out to him as he jumped in the driver's seat. Another Sunday in the books. But Brad loved his job, teaching spinning classes. We've been in a series that we've called Embodied. This is the last week. And in this series, we've talked about the church, specifically the idea that you're a part of a church, and you aren't just a part of a church as a gathering of individual people, but rather God uses the church as something that shapes you 
The church isn't here just for your preferences, and it isn't only here as an opportunity for you to serve other people. It is, in fact, a place where you yourself get shaped. But as we finish that series, we've talked about self-identity, how our community breaks that apart in Jesus. We've talked about kind of expanding that community outward and thinking about what it means to have a gospel culture. We've talked about what it means that the world, both our local congregation or our local community, but then also the world itself sees that gospel culture as a reflection of Jesus. And we've talked about how that happens specifically on a Sunday morning. Yes, community happens in lots of different places, but it happens in a worship service. This shaping happens every single week in a very specific way. But this morning, I want to round all that out with a statement maybe of challenge and hope. I say in my head, fear and hope. I don't want to preach fear, but it is, I'll be honest, something that I'm always afraid of as we talk about these things, and it's this. It is completely and totally possible. It is completely and totally possible for us to do 98% of what we have been talking about over the last five weeks without ever touching Jesus, without ever mentioning Jesus, without ever thinking about Jesus, without Jesus ever actually being a part of what we're doing. The case study I just read was based on an interview from um, an individual who works in the upper regions of Soul Cycle, which before the um, COVID pandemic was a $900 million company here in the United States. Soul Cycle says that they are an amazing place to cry uninterrupted for 45 minutes, that they are a place that Riders feed off the group's shared identity and motivation to push themselves to their greatest potential. In becoming part of their community, they say our riders are instilled with greatest aware, greater awareness of their bodies and their emotions. This awareness leads to healthier decisions, relationships, and lives. And in a later interview, their CEO said the best spinning instructors they have are quasi-pastoral individuals who regularly help people not only with their fitness needs, but also with questions like, should I get a divorce? Or how can I improve my parenting? It's no wonder then that Harvard researchers say that Soul Cycles, kind of another shared person in, or entity in that group, CrossFit, that you might be aware of, is considered by Harvard to be the most rapidly rising religion in the United States in 2019. It's totally possible to do so much of community, serve one another, make meals, have friends, visit the hospital, go do things together, support causes, gather for ritual and ceremony, feel encouragement, meet a significant other, grieve and cry together. It's totally possible to do all of those things in a thousand other places other than a church. And for most of us, a thousand other places that we might at least 
on the surface say are more fun and can seemingly be easier to be a part of. Why is that? Well, community is God's idea. The idea of assembling together, of having relationship is God's idea. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us flat out we weren't made to be alone. We too often, often take that to the marriage place. It is in that context to some degree, but more widely, it's simply in a context of relationship and community as a whole. God Himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a community. There's friendship, there's relationship in the Godhead. God walks with Adam in the cool of the day before Eve is ever in the picture. And yet still, more and more and more community are needed here in the world. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He is given Eve. It's actually not good for either of them to be alone. The be fruitful and multiply part actually has the most to do with God's vision for the world, spreading community, God-honoring relationship into the entire world. And the idea would have been, had we not fallen, that you really would have just had a world growing outward from region to region, place to place, environment to environment, culture to culture, of individuals in deep friendship and love for one another, honoring God. It's, it's helpful to remember as much as we do believe that God, that, that we have been broken because of our sin, that we have kind of a disfellowship or a distance between us and God, just because that has happened does not mean all of the elements of being made in God's image have gone away. That initial purpose for life that includes community has not gone away. So as much as we are broken people who struggle with community, who go into it with our own self-interest, who uh, we go into it with our desire for power, for control, to reign over others. We do community through things like war and diplomacy and politics instead of love and care for one another. Nonetheless, community is a thing that is happening all over. And the reason I keep harping on this is because, again, it is totally possible if our definition of the things that we have been talking about here over the last few weeks, if our definition of that is only community, only relationship with other people, it is totally possible to find that in other places. In some respects, right, it's good to find it in other places. We're not only finding it here at church. I was amazed this year my kids started um, just random soccer, rec soccer on Saturday for the first time. I don't know if you have ever, either if you have children and have been a part of this, or even if you've just driven by one of the soccer fields on a Saturday or a Sunday um, here in Atlanta, it is chaotic and amazing both at the same time. It's this little world that just rises up and suddenly a thousand people descend on fields and things happen. Sports happens. Community happens. I've been amazed at the parents that I've gotten to know. I've been amazed at the people who are like, this is their thing. 
and you know, they show me the ropes, and I sit there, look like a lost puppy with all of my chairs, not knowing where to go, three kids in tow who are already trying to throw the soccer ball instead of kick it, and they help me out. So what do we do? Why am I here? Why are, am I letting all of the air out of my own balloon? Well, I want to tell you it's for two reasons. But first, I want to tell you why I picked this text. 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, again, part of that first letter to the Corinthians that we have visited a couple of different times in this series. It's a letter from Paul to a messy church, and at the same time, a church that, when you really think about it, is not all that different from any of the churches you and I have been a part of. It's full of real people with real struggles and real questions and real experiences. Here at the end of the book, Paul addresses a question that you and I probably would find weird, um, just like a no-brainer, but in the day, it was a big deal. And it's this, Jesus said he was coming back, right? Well, what happens if I die before Jesus comes back? Will I miss Jesus? This was a real question. Now, Jesus doesn't give a timetable for him coming back. And obviously, 2,000 years later, we have an idea that, well, maybe we should expect him tomorrow. There's not that sense of dread of what happens if he does come back tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, you know, theologically what's going to happen. We don't think about that, but the people in Paul's day were because this is only being written 20 or 30 years after Jesus had died come back to life and gone into heaven. And so, people have started to die. Apostles even have started to die. And so, people are like, wait, if Jesus is supposed to come back, like, aren't the people He loves the most, aren't aren't they going to miss Him? What's going to happen to them? And so, because of that, there became this debate over the resurrection of the dead. Again, something that we in Orthodox Christianity take for granted, this idea that there's life after death and, and really immediate life, that as Jesus told the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. We get to be with Jesus. And eventually one day, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, we get to be a part of that. Well, Paul speaks to these people who are afraid that if they or their loved ones die, they're going to miss Jesus. And he says, no, of course not. Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a resurrection of the dead. You are going to be raised from the dead as well. You get to be with Jesus. But then he takes the discussion into an interesting spot, and that's where this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, shows us. He starts talking about what if Jesus didn't come back from the dead? What if the resurrection isn't true? And he says, if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus essentially isn't who he said he was, if the concepts of him being the actual Son of God, who has real and actual power over sin and death forever, if those things are somehow not true or even just less true than we think they are, then Paul's argument is that the entire thing falls apart. Our entire faith falls apart. He says our faith we believe in vain. Later, Tom didn't read this passage yet, 
Later on, though, in the argument, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus actually isn't who he says he is, if he is even just a little bit less than who he says he is, then he's not enough. He's not enough for us. He's not enough to support everything we believe and everything we hope in. I was reading an interview from a couple of pastors talking, um, and one pastor, pastors forget about passages of Scripture all the time. Um, Our faith is still just a a growing thing, just like you guys. And um, between these two pastors we're interviewing, one of them was asked, you know, what what if the gospel isn't true? What if Jesus isn't true? And this pastor kind of started going on a thing of like, well, I love my people, and they're so great, and I love my church, and I love the things we're doing, and we're doing really, really great things in the world. And so, you know, if I'll be sad if, you know, if Jesus isn't true, horrifically so, because I love Jesus, but I'm still glad I was a pastor. And I understand. I understand where he's coming from. I mean, I, I love you guys, and I really, on most days, love what I do. And, you know, I, I love the church. I love, again, what we do. But the other pastor who remembered this passage said, you know what, I get where you're coming from, but actually, if Jesus wasn't true, I would be utterly horrified. Not simply because I love Jesus, but also, as Paul was saying here, I would have wasted my life, this pastor said. All of those good things that we we did that I'm proud of us doing, I could have done without all of the hardship, all of the preaching of the sermons, all of the building of the church buildings. I could have done all of that in another way. And it was an interesting thing to see them both kind of sit in that sadness for a moment. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 applies to the whole shebang. If Christ is not who he says he is, then what we have is worthless. And what we have, we are, as Paul says, to be pitied. Here's why I kind of end this, not the sermon, but this kind of group of sermons, at least initially on a downer. Two reasons I really care about this a lot. The first one, um, emerging generations, this idea of generations that are coming up. So we've got millennials, kind of my friends, my peers, and then all of the people I represent that you all have entrusted me to here at this church, children and youth. We are weirdly, paradoxically in this world in a loneliness crisis. Loneliness has gone up 190% over the last decade. Ironically, 100% of that was from 2012 to 2018, long before a pandemic ever happened, before we were in lockdown, before we weren't allowed to hang out with our friends or actually go to school or actually do anything at all. Loneliness and depression caused by loneliness had already doubled in this country. Pundits are not completely sure why. It's not something that's easily testable. Though, interestingly, 2012 was the first year in America that smartphone usage had over 50% of the country. 
But despite feeling incredibly lonely, in interviews, younger millennials and those in Gen Z are very optimistic about finding community. They know they're lonely, they know they struggle, but they deeply desire friendships. They deeply desire all of the things we talk about with community, and yet, in an age where they move around a bunch because of school and jobs, where there's not kind of that sense of loyalty to a place where technology does abound, they overwhelmingly say they doubt, even those who are believers in Jesus, they overwhelmingly say they doubt they will ever be able to find the community they are looking for in a church. It's almost like if all we are is about community, we're not even able to do that well. There are other options out there. The second thing, and this is what I've been, as I've just talked to some of you, is I call it the myth of in-town. In-town's been around now for, what, about 30 years, give or take. It's an amazing place. We have an amazing history. At the same time, some of you have been here a very, very long time. It's a long and hard and storied history. This is both the place where some of you met your spouses and got married and you raised your kids, and you almost have no other concept of church because this is home. And yet, this church has, in various ways, sometimes had wonderful swells of momentum, and other times it's felt dead or dying. When you build something like that for decades at a time, there can almost be a sense of survivor's ownership or pride. We've done this. We've survived. We've been here. Coming in, one of the things I've told people lately, um, I'm on my fifth year here as a pastor, and it's awesome. I've never been a pastor in one church this long before. It's great. It's great to not be looking for another job. It's great to uh, really be able to start referring to this church as we. That actually takes a lot longer for a pastor than you realize. But even then, kind of coming in as an outsider, it's interesting to see, you know, the, the deep-seated connection that some of you guys have to the history of this place. It's very, very easy to believe that the faithfulness of God in this place was actually just a lot of good people working together a lot of good hard, hard times, and the pride that we feel in making it, in surviving, in being here, in still being here, in seeing children come up and join the church and move through the ranks. It's easy sometimes to feel that. And again, to forget Jesus. I think that's always going to be a danger of a church that's been around as long as we have. And that's not an indictment of you all. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm in it. And the longer I'm in it, the longer I feel that too. It's so easy to be proud just of an institution. So we're stuck in the middle, right? We have generations coming up who completely distrust institutions entirely, and we have deep-seated pride and hope 
and, and great feelings in an institution as well. What do we do? Well, without Jesus, we are most to be pitied. We sell the building. We do lots of other fun things with other people in this city at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. But that's the downer. Here's the good news. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. The resurrection has happened. As much as we can have that, you know, cold water shot at all of our community and all of our efforts and all of the stuff we do and say on its own, it's just not enough. It's okay to say that because with Jesus, it is more than enough. It's absolutely more than enough. Because Jesus is true, friends, our community takes on a life that is so much more than anything that anything else can offer. And I want to just highlight two ways. The first is sacrifice. You see, without Jesus, a community stays together because people want to stay together. We call that will. All right, will, as researchers actually tell us, is a muscle or at least a, a, a psychological muscle, if you will. That means you only have a certain amount of it. If you are super stubborn and your significant other tells you you are often very stubborn, you can just tell them I'm a, you're a bodybuilder, right? Like you have that muscle and you've been working it for a long, long time and you're going to stick to your guns no matter what. Well, community without Jesus only holds together because people want it to hold together. And that means they're continuing to feel the things it's making them feel or it's meeting the needs that it's continuing, that, that, that it's intended to make the needs for. Or they're just stubborn enough to not want to call it quits and go somewhere else because they like it there or they like the feeling of going somewhere else less than staying Unfortunately, many, many communities only stay together because of that sense of will. And so when things get hard or when they get difficult or when they get boring or when they get tired, they fracture. And by no means, you've heard me say this before and I would continue to say this, by no means am I saying, well, that means you've got to stay at in-town or you've got to stay at this place or that place or that place. There are good reasons to move on to a different fellowship if that really is you, I'd love to talk to you about it. But when you think about all of the things that we've talked about, the idea that you would be sitting here in a pew with people who are not actually the same as you, and as you're called into a gospel culture together with other people, you're actually being called closer and closer together with other people who are very, very different from you. And as you're called into intimacy with other people for long periods of time, you realize that they're broken sinners and they're going to sin against you. And you've got to be okay with that. You've got to enter into that with a, a spirit of repentance, a spirit of just enough thick skin to be able to kind of absorb the hit, pray to Jesus, and then forgive them. You've got to be there. 
You got to be in deep enough relationship that when people get sick, you're not just sending flowers. You're not just visiting a hospital room. This means you're going to be walking with their loved ones after they die for decades. Friends, any community in the world loves a widow for three weeks. It's true. But what about three years? That's the gospel. It's those types of commitments and things that go so far beyond will to say that there's no logical reason whatsoever that people would spend their lives for the sake of others unless you and I have been transformed by Jesus. Unless someone who already has spent his entire life for us is conforming us more and more to his image. There's no logical reason for it. There's no reason economically for you to give money to an organization like this. There's no reason other than you actually believe everything you have is actually God's. And so you want to bring it into his house joyfully. There's no reason. There's no reason for you to submit yourself week in and week out, not just to diversity or people, you know, maybe a little bit different than I am and because I want to grow and kind of look good because diversity is a hot button right now. No, to dedicate yourself to spending the rest of your forever with people who are very different than you and whom it's going to challenge you to love and it's going to expose your sin to be close to them. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul talks about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. And the Greek language there actually includes the word koinonia, which means the fellowship. He literally calls it the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You ever thought about that? Christ's sufferings, Presbyterian church. When people say we're a fellowshipy church. There it is in Philippians chapter 3. Without Jesus, all of those things are only maintained so long and far as we're able to keep our own attention, to keep our fun, to keep our emotions up, our will up, our grit up enough. And I don't know about you. I'm 35. I've been in the church my whole life. I've seen enough gross stuff in churches. I don't have enough grit to deal with all of that. And if you say that's because I'm a millennial and we just don't have grit anyway, that's fine. But I'm just honest there, all right? I've seen enough gross stuff happen to people in the name of Jesus to say, if Jesus isn't actually who he says he is, I'm out. Sacrifice. At the same time, we also have communities of grace. Because I've also lived just here in sacrifice. Churches that talk about that all the time and talk about that aspect of Jesus all the time. They don't ever talk about the resurrection. They don't ever talk about the grace that comes from Jesus. And so I just end up living in that exhausted place where church you know, I'm trying to make it more and more and more like what I think Jesus wants it to be. And I keep trying and I keep trying and I keep trying. And then I just, I'm out 
not based on my, you know, disgust with uh, the, the church not being what I think it's going to be, but just out of my own exhaustion. I don't know about you, how many of you might be in that place? Many organizations live by an 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the things are done by 20% of the people. Amazingly, we're not exactly there, and we actually have survey results that tell us that. Thank you for filling those out. But still, I feel it, and I feel it when I talk to some of you. It's very, very easy to click back into that will place and say, because of Jesus, I'm going to keep working, and I'm going to keep fighting, and I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to keep going. But there's a resurrection after a cross. For our community to be Jesus-shaped, both of these have to be emphasized. And where's the grace? The grace is this, that this is going to be really, really hard for all of us, and that's okay. That, that sin is going to happen, and that's okay. You are not going to look as shiny and holy as you think you do when you show up on a Sunday morning, and that's okay. Your kid is going to screw up and you're going to be embarrassed, and you're going to ask yourself whether or not you're a good parent. And we're going to tell you both you're a good parent and also, yeah, you screwed up and probably need to repent. And that's okay. Why? Not because we're a hold hands, kumbaya, Jesus is okay with anything community, but because we're a broken people who are being shaped by the resurrection into a people that say Jesus is making us more than we are. That means all the stuff on this sacrifice side, God is empowering you to do it. And when you can't do it, when you fail to do it, God is sitting there holding you and saying, I love you and I died for you. Do you know the number of times I have had, much less actions, racist thoughts or ageist thoughts that I've sat there and gone, man, if we just had more people who were like energetic and excited, man, if we had more people, you know, if I could just go and not have to sing that song that I know another person with another musical taste would like better. Man, if I could just go and not get invited to any of the IFC or ESL things that we do here at In Town, because I just want to come and kind of sit in a pew. I've thought those things. Full confession to you. Because sometimes I just want to sit in a chair and sit there on a Sunday morning and listen and not feel like anything's being asked of me. A community of grace says I both get to repent for those thoughts and we get to celebrate together, me growing. We get to celebrate together the fact that maybe I'm not having those thoughts as much this year as I did last year. We get to celebrate the fact that my heart is maybe becoming more and more like Jesus, and that's why I'm having these horrific, sinful things be illuminated in my own life. I'm not just sitting in a chair getting to be a churchgoer who doesn't actually care as long as people see that I'm a churchy person. The grace of God, the resurrection of Jesus in your life means this community gets to be what God wants it to be. 
And that is the definition of success. And that's the definition of momentum. And that's the definition of progress, of a good church, of a church that you want to invite your friends to. On August 21st, David already announced it. I hate calling it a congregational meeting. Again, I've got like old school church PTSD and congregational meetings only were either really boring or really bad. There was never a good part to either one of those. Congregational party, I don't know. We're excited about what God's doing here at InTown. We're excited about how he's calling people to himself in new ways. We're excited for new people. Next month or next well, month and week, we're going to have some new members. God's doing some awesome things here. But whether or not you feel that energy, whether or not you feel that excitement or that momentum, you want to know what else God has done here for 30 plus years? He has called people to sacrifice just like Jesus. And he's called people to remember that they are being resurrected just like Jesus. I don't know which side of that struggle you might be on this morning. You're exhausted and you need to hear grace. You're a kind of cushion warmer who just really, really likes the indent they have in their favorite chair and you need to be moved to really step up and be a part of what Jesus is doing here. But we're such a culture of binaries. It's so easy for you to just hear one of these sides or the other, and I need you today, friends, to hold on to both. If Jesus is true, and we're not a people who are most to be pitied, if what we believe is not vanity, if Jesus is really who he says he is and we can really sing these songs and believe them, then we can be a community that is different than any other community in the history of the world because we are being shaped by the sacrifice and the grace of God in the person of Jesus. And that is worth our entire lives wherever we are. That is who we're being embodied to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for today and for the honor of getting to preach your word for a month to these wonderful people I love so much. Would you make us a people, a people of priests, a people of those who love one another, and the world sees us and loves you more because of it, would you make us a people who know your death and your resurrection, who live in that reality together, and who are excited about tomorrow, not because of how emotionally excited we are, not because of how much grit that we're going to put our shoulder to the grindstone, because you died, and because you came back, and because we know it. Pray this in your name. Amen.